My friends, we have a wonderful, wonderful treat this morning. Shirley Leonard is Carol Mansfield's uh, sister. Uh, I guess I will call you an expert in the ways of caregiving because I believe that's what you are, though you would probably deny that yourself. Uh, she has written a marvelous book that brings so much peace to those of us who have been in a position of being a caregiver. And uh, we are very fortunate to have her here today. Uh, kind of an answer to prayers, I think, to have you here today, especially with all the caregiving we got going on in our congregation. So, without further ado. Thank sure. you, Corey. I am really tickled to be here. Um, my book is out on the table and my name's on the book, but actually my brother and sister are here and it's our book. I mean, they lived it with me and, you know, and they put up with me when I was doing goofy things in the caregiving years, but I'm so grateful to God for the chance to be here and that Carol found this wonderful church and that you've embraced her and just to be here every once in a while and to see the caring and the praying of this church is very encouraging. I'm not going to talk real long this morning because Corey just got back and he's got something in his heart that he's just bursting to tell you. And I have a feeling it's something we're all going to need. But I want to tell you a little story this morning that might help you be a caregiver for your own spirit. If anybody's interested in the book, they're out on the table. They're $10. Put the money in the basket or... Carol, cover your ears. My husband isn't here. He says he's my business manager, and my editor's not here, so they won't hear it. If you are a caregiver, you don't have $10, or if you know a caregiver and you don't have $10 with you, just take a book, please, because I want this book to minister to people. But this is a little story about how you can help take care of your own spirit. Okay. You're going to be very lucky because I've got eight grandkids, and you only have to hear about two of them this morning. All right. Michael and Grandpa are fishing, and they're having a great, wonderful day. How many of you like to fish, big or little? I know Shauna and Eli like to fish. All right. So they're fishing, and they're having a great, wonderful day. And except, all of a sudden, Michael says, Grandpa, Grandpa, come here. So Grandpa puts his pole down, comes over to see what the heck's the matter with Michael. Michael's 14, and he doesn't usually panic out of the blue. Grandpa, look. And he points down, and sure enough, it's his favorite lure, the one Grandpa gave him last year for Christmas, the only one he can always count on catching something with. It, and there it is. It's stuck, and it's on a bench that's sunk way under the water, pretty far out. Grandpa, what am I going to do? Grandpa, my wonderful husband, in the senior citizen wisdom, says, Michael, I can see it. It's right there. Go get it. Wait, what? Michael says that a lot. Wait, what? Michael, I can see it. It's right there. Go get it. <sighs> you know, so he does a Michael sigh, and he takes off his shoes and socks, and he starts out. And Michael's not a wimpy kid. You know Michael. He's taller than I am at 14, and his brother Wesley is way taller than any of us. But, and Michael's a, he, he can play any sport there is, and he's got all these trophies, but he's a town kid. He's used to cement under his feet. Do you remember pond muck? He wasn't used to pond muck. So Michael gets out, yay, so far, I probably up to his ankles. I wasn't there. But the way Dick tells the story, once he hit so far, then he just backed up. And he figured his lure was a loss. 
so sad. I mean, it's, you really got to feel bad for Michael, don't you? Well, it's the next day now, and we're all there. And his cousin Raven is beside him. Raven's 15. He's 14. And I don't know about your family, but in our family, the cousins that are kind of close together in age know how to push each other's buttons, drive each other crazy, hence drive the whole family a little bit crazy once in a while. But he's showing Raven where this lure is, and I think he's probably just trying to get some sympathy, actually. And before any of us realized what was happening, she just walked right out there. After the thing, she's got jeans on, regular shirt, about halfway off. She has to stop and reach down and get her a flip-flop that got stuck in that pond muck. So she looks like a drowned rat, but she keeps going, goes out, gets the thing, turns around. And without being a smart aleck at all, she says to Michael, you're welcome, and she means it. And without him being a smart aleck at all, which is really unusual for Michael, he looks at his lure that he thought was lost forever, and he says, thanks, Rave, and he means it. And it changed the whole atmosphere of our family vacation. And do you know that's what Jesus did for us? He just saw the muck and mire and the yuck in our lives, and he just plowed right in there and did what needed to be done, and it was a lot harder than pond muck. And the world may try to tell you, when you look at the newspaper or you read you know, look, you look at the TV, whatever, that life is full of awful things, that it's just cruel, it's just pointless, it's just too hard. And if that happens, I want your heart to stop and say, like Michael, wait, what? Because the Word of God says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And if the enemy tries to say to you, not just worldwide, but personal-wise. Look at all the garbage that's happened in your life. You know, life stinks. Feel sorry for yourself. Get in the pity party because pity parties can really feel good. I know I've been there. Let your heart stop and say, wait, what? Because the Word of God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And if you... The enemy or the world or whatever tries to tell you, give up. You're worn out. You know, you're too old or you're too young or you're too unqualified or you're too dumb or you're too whatever. I want your heart to stop and say, wait, what? Because the word of God says he will keep you strong right up to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be here together in your presence, and we're so grateful for Christ, for Jesus, for the one who really, truly is our ultimate caregiver. Help us, Lord, to nestle in his arms and open our heart to hear what Corey has to say today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing, Shirley. And that will, without us even coordinating, dovetail very nicely into what we're going to do next. Is it odd or is it God? Uh, we've been uh, working slowly through the Gospel of Mark. Remember we started out by saying that most scholars believe this was the first Gospel written, the, the first one where they woke up and said, hey, wait a minute, we better write all this stuff down so people... We'll know it in years and years to come. 
And we are on to the fifth chapter. And already in the first four chapters, there's been all sorts of shake-up and commotion. And in this fifth chapter, it begins right after Jesus has calmed the storm and they have crossed the sea. And they have come over to an area of the country that is mostly not Jewish and therefore mostly not looking for a Messiah. And beginning at the first verse of chapter 5 of Mark. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? The man replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there on the hillside a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, Send us into the swine, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swineherders ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, The man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So that's our first of three stories we're going to cover. And now the second story. Well, the second and the third both fold in together. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came in when he saw him, fell at his feet, and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. 
But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he pulled, put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. That's a lot of chapter. And that's why our sermon title is Life, Death, and the Devil You Know. And let's, uh, let's begin with the devil you know. As, as Shirley just said, so much in life and in faith is, is about moving forward, uh, moving through the things that plague us, going ahead and, and walking through the pond muck, as it were, with, with faith that God is with us, with, with faith that God, who has experienced all there is to be experienced, is right there with us experiencing what we are experiencing now. Um, this is a simple thing to say. It's a very hard thing to live every day. And our first bit of evidence, gospel evidence no less, is the reaction of these people when one among them is healed. The Gerasene demoniac, this man, this guy who was so nasty, so vile, and so violent that they had tried to chain him to keep him from hurting himself or others. And he, he was so strong in his delirium that he could break the chains. This crazy guy who finally ended up living away from everyone among the tombs and was so tormented by so many different issues, so many different demons, that they were nicknamed legion, a Roman legion, a, a sizable number of soldiers. And he's healed by Jesus and placed in the pigs that march off into the sea, which, of course, is not kosher, right? And did you catch their reaction? When the townspeople come out, to see this big deal. And this guy who has plagued them for years, this, this man who has been tormented and tormenting for years, is in his right mind, completely healed, completely harmless. 
And what does, what do they say to him? Please leave. Please leave. Please get out of here. Uh, apparently they, they can't get their arms around, their head around this huge a blessing, this much power. Sure, they lost 2,000 pigs. But this tormented soul is tormented no longer. It is an amazing miracle done in public in front of many witnesses. An incredible miracle that has restored one of their own to well-being. And they say, get out of here. Biggest heartbreak in all of my ministry is when someone says that to Jesus in the face of a miracle. And I've seen it in my own life, and I know others among you have seen it as well. When, when it's laid right there in front of someone, so much good and so much blessing, and something inside them makes them constitutionally unable to pick it up. Oh, what a horrible thing. What a heartbreaking thing. And in such a case, all you can hope is that the little drop that you've placed in that bucket is that much closer to it overflowing and them accepting God in their lives and accepting faith in their lives. And it happens often that way. And isn't that what Jesus has in mind here? He's rebuffed. He needs people. The harvest is come and the workers are few. But he will not take this man with him. He says instead, no, you stay here and you tell everybody. You tell everybody about what happened. See, the people who were turned away, it's like the one sheep in the 99. It's like the prodigal son. God's always looking for that one who turns away. And if you have someone in your life that is staying with the devil they know rather than the blessing that could come, here is hope from Jesus himself. There's always a lifeline. And your work to try to help this person is not in vain. It's all a part of what will eventually, hopefully, be the rescue line they will grab hold of and let themselves be pulled out of the muck or through the muck and mire to well-being again. But still, to have it right there in front of you and say, no, please leave. We're more comfortable with the devil we know. We're more comfortable with the life we've got than to have such a dramatic change. What would happen to a person who didn't feel that way? What would happen? What, what happened to that one guy who stuck around then after being healed? What happened to that man who had been healed who sticks around and goes throughout the Decapolis, the ten cities, and preaches Jesus? I wondered how discouraged he might have come, become at times. Talking to people who didn't want to hear, who didn't want to have life abundant like you have it in a life of faith, who didn't want to give up the superficial material riches for the true wealth, the true treasure of a life with God. I think he probably would have been something like our next two in this book. When Jesus crossed back over, 
he's met by a crowd. And in the crowd is a synagogue leader, Jairus, who's in trouble. His daughter's at the point of death. Now, we need to remember that already Jesus' reputation is getting around. And already the powers that be in the faith are starting to plot against him. Remember, we saw that within the first few chapters. They already were trying to shut him down. And yet, this leader of a synagogue, this religious leader, is coming to him in desperation and in hope because his daughter is dying and he doesn't know what else he could possibly do. So he comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus and asks for Jesus' help. Jesus agrees to give help. Jesus goes to give help. And Jesus says the, woman, the girl is not dead but sleeping. And the reaction, the reaction of the people there, the, probably the professional mourners, and they really did this in ancient times. If, if someone was dead, they had professional people who came in and howled for you. They would, they would howl and cry and scream and carry on. And, and this, was, this was what was done. I, I remember in this church uh, once, this is not a church where people tend to raise their hands. It's more of a, a more evangelical, more gifts of the spirit kind of thing. And we had someone in this church who felt that kind of uh, gifty thing. They wanted to be able to raise their hand. And we had at the time a, a, woman, a girl named Miriam young lady, she was about 19 or 20, I don't know how many of you remember her, and she came to us from a church where they did this, and this woman said, you know, once in a while in church, I just want to go like this, I just want to raise my hands, and Miriam looked at her and said, and for me, once in a while in church, I don't want to be expected to have to do this. It was really funny because they were, they were explaining two sides of the same reality. It's what often happens in our faith. Very often in our faith, things that start out spontaneous become regular habits, and then they become traditions. And then we just do them because it's what we do, and it's expected. So, someone in your neighborhood dies in the time of Jesus, you are expected to go and fall out. You're expected to go and wail and cry and gnash your teeth and go through the grief process, the quote-unquote grief process. So when Jesus comes in and says, she's not dead but sleeping, would you think an appropriate reaction of a human being would not be to laugh at him, but at, at worst, take pity on his delusion? What... What kind of separation is there for you from the grief of, of parents and family that when someone comes rushing in, you laugh at them? It's, it's in the text where you can see people had this expectation of the way things were supposed to happen and it made them blind to the fact that a miracle might just be occurring in their presence. So what does Jesus do with all those people who automatically shut him down? He just says, get out. Get out of the room. Put them all out. He takes the ones. He takes the mother, the 
father, the ones who are closest to the little girl, takes them into the room with him. He reaches over, and this is one of the few examples of the words as Jesus actually spoke them in his original Aramaic. He says, Talitekum, little girl, get up. And the little girl gets up. And she is whole. And she is well. And I wish Mark wasn't so brief in his storytelling because I want that little girl to walk out of that room and have all those people that laughed at Jesus see her. But we don't get that part. We can imagine it if we need to. But this fits right in with the folks across the lake. The folks across the lake who saw a miracle and said, I can't handle it. We can't handle it here. We're more comfortable with the devil we know. Just leave and stiff arm him. And then this girl, there are the people who are of Jesus' own faith who want to get on with their professional mourning and do the next thing that their faith tells them they have to do. And in this by rote nature of how they want to live their faith, they miss completely God among them and working right there. So what about our third story? That woman who had been hemorrhaging. She had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Now, it doesn't mean she was continuously hemorrhaging for 12 years. You would lose all your blood. But it meant she was plagued by this illness for 12 years and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. She had been to physician after physician. She had exhausted all of her savings and she was no better. She was getting worse. She was desperate. And she came to find Jesus. Now, first of all, hemorrhaging, an issue of blood, unclean. You are not supposed to be out in public. If you are out in public, you shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be touching anybody. If you are a woman out in public, you certainly should not be touching a man who is not your brother or father, and you certainly should not be touching a rabbi. All these social constructs are against this woman. Everything in her society at this point, is telling her, just stay home and die. But that's not what she does. She comes out. She hears he's going to be here. Now the crowd is pressing in on him, so she has to fight and weasel and wiggle her way through the crowd. Can you just imagine it? All these people rushing in, and she is desperate for healing, and she squeezes and twists and reaches and reaches and just makes contact with the hem of his robe. And that is enough. That contact is enough. Now, here's a real interesting thing about this too. This is a miracle Jesus does unconsciously. He did not intentionally turn to this woman and heal her. He felt the power going out of her, the power directly from God, and the woman felt healed right away. Boom, she's healed. He feels this. And he turns around, who touched me, who touched me? Now, he's in a crowd. He's packed in. And his disciples, who are on their way from point A to point B, say, what do you mean, who touched you? Maybe this guy, that one over there, that kid there, could have been that dog over there. Just, you're surrounded, Jesus. Who touched you? Who touched you? And he said, no. He, he felt the power going out of him. He didn't mean, who touched me? He meant, who touched me? Now, this woman has broken every rule in the book. And she's healed. And she could turn around and slip quietly back to her life. 
But she doesn't do that. She comes forward trembling, afraid, right at Jesus' feet and tells him the whole story. I love this healing story because what Jesus does is gives her all the power she has been lacking and feeling absent from her life for all these years. There, in front of everybody, she spills her guts and says everything she's been through. Remember, the crowd is pressing all around. So all these people around know that she defied law and decorum to come and be touched. And his answer to her is, your faith has made you well. He is saying to her, because you had that strength in you of your faith, you are healed. He doesn't pull it all back for the glory on him, but he gives her glory. He gives her honor. He restores her the rest of the way. Now this is the kind of Messiah I would not want kicked out of my town. This is the kind of Messiah I would not want laughed out of my house. This is the kind of Messiah that I would fight through anything to get to. And this is the kind of Messiah we have, you and me. Life, death, and the devil you know. It is so easy for us, so easy for us to take all this for granted. We've been telling this story for 2,000 years. We've been coming to this place in particular for more than 200. We, we have our little bulletin here that tells us the order that things happen and why they happen and how they will happen. But don't any of us ever make the mistake of thinking that God is meant to be predictable or anything but incredibly surprising and powerful and glorious. i got plenty of devils I know, and there are a few I have a hard time giving up. Likewise, there are some things I want to see happen that I think are lost causes. And I think some of my hopes are probably dead. But I hope and I pray that I myself and all of you might have a faith as strong as that one woman. That we aren't going to let the objections of the world of our circle of friends, of our families, or even our own minds get in the way of us reaching out to touch the hem of that garment. That we won't let anything stop us from being all the person that God made us to be. No matter what obstacle might be in our way, no matter how deep the pond muck might be, just look at that fifth chapter of Mark and see what an amazing God, an amazing Christ we have and can call our own. Get rid of the devil you know. Don't worry about death and you will find life so blessed.
and so abundant. It's already happening, isn't it? And may it continue to be so. Amen.